0: Welcome to Startup Hacks, a We Global Studios podcast. We explore the stories and secret strategies that women entrepreneurs use to save time and money when bootstrapping and building their businesses. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and today I am so excited to welcome. Dana Loberg. Dana is the founder and CEO of Leo AR, and she is a Yale alum and graduate of Stanford StartX, 500 Startups, Betaworks, and Deutsche Telekom Accelerators. Dana has the combined ability to visually capture where the markets are going and has both the right and left brain talent to execute a multi-dimensional company like Leo AR, and I'm truly jealous. Welcome, Dana. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's great to have you on the show. So tell us a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and how you got started in AR.
1: Sure. So it's kind of been a long path that I would say is pretty untraditional of most Silicon Valley tech entrepreneurs, which is great because it kind of can give hope to people that don't have kind of the Stanford MIT background. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in West Los Angeles. Um, and I was someone who did like a variety of things. I was, a uh, one of the top volleyball players in California, but I also, you know, played the piano for over 10 years. I did a lot of sailing. So I was kind of like raised in a way that I was kind of like the Renaissance woman. I wasn't raised in the typical American way of like do one thing and do it well, which is especially something that I think they teach yes. in entrepreneurship and focus, 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 and be good at one thing. So mm-hmm. Um, when I went to Yale and I was a history major, I actually did my thesis on technology and the impact of tech on religion, not knowing at all I would get oh into technology. <laughs> so it's just, oh, wow. I really like reading and research and I like learning about history and loops and how, how like communities grow. Um, and I found it really hard when I got into the real world, just the real world and how it worked. I remember mm-hmm. um, my first job was at McCann Erickson in advertising. And I just want to be frank, like I did have a lot of jobs, like I'm not someone that was really, really successful in the corporate world and then decided to like change into entrepreneurship, which obviously does happen for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of was one of those people that was shocked by what I witnessed in the corporate world. And then I was like, Oh, God, like, there's no way I'm going to survive here. (laughs) And then found it really difficult to find my way because obviously out of Yale or Harvard or any of these schools, Duke, anywhere. You know, everyone kind of has these traditional, like, I'm going to work at J.P. Morgan, and then I'm going to go to business school, and then I'm going to, you know, start my own business, maybe. But for me, um, I felt like I was just, I tried a bunch of different jobs, and I never really knew what, like, what the right path was. So I failed at a lot of different things in New York City when I first got out of Yale. Um, But what I did learn, obviously, through all these failures and trying new gigs, is that, like entrepreneurship was really the only path that I was going to survive in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, because I realized in the corporate world that I wasn't built to do one task over and over and over again, like a monkey, not to say that people in the corporate world are monkeys, but like right. it definitely is a certain personality that's willing to play the political game and climb the ladder and stick it out to get the corner office. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then basically I ended up moving out of New York city to San Francisco on a whim. I was just like six years into New York City and I wanted something completely different and kind of go back to my roots, but not be in Los Angeles. So I sold everything and moved to San Francisco. And that was a whole new experience going from like the corporate 401k and... (laughs) The paychecks and all the like, you know, you have your mental, your mental day and your health care and kind of everything set up for for you in the East Coast. And then going to the West Coast was like, like the whole new frontier. Like everyone had their own business and people were, um, they didn't have a 401k and it it was true entrepreneurship from like the first day I landed in San Francisco. And I was like, whoa, this is, it was pretty scary to be honest. Mm. Um so anyway my first job was with a woman and she was building her own uh PR social media marketing company that was pretty innovative for the space and we worked with high tech companies in Redwood City and Palo Alto doing their pre-launch launch and post-launch on TechCrunch and other publications um and I got to put my writing skills to use and I saw how I was her you know first and second hire so I really we really built the company together like two three people out of her kitchen and grew it to 10 people and kind of being a part of that process really gave me inspiration to start on my own ventures and that's how I got started and when you moved to San Francisco had you thought you were going
0: to become an entrepreneur and kind of pursue that 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 trajectory or were you just moving to just move and get out of New York and start over
1: I was moving to get out like I knew Mm -hmm. I would be like sex in the city and like 50 and single (laughs) (laughs) I was like is that really the trajectory I want in my future and I obviously wanted to slow things down and kind of take life more seriously because New York City can be very like fun and you just feel Mm -hmm. like a child all over in an adult city um but I was ready to get more serious and when I moved I actually became I was a a volleyball coach which is totally random but I didn't go to San Francisco knowing this is the tech Mecca of the world and you're going to be working in tech. It was really just, um, getting out of New York into something new, um, which is also pretty interesting. So I was a, I was doing coach in a private school, um, in the city and, uh, knew that wasn't where I wanted to go either. <laughs> it wasn't the, yep. like, <laughs> the path I wanted, but it was a job and I, you know, I learned a lot from it, but, um, when this woman was looking for her next, like her first hire, I was like, oh, this will be perfect for me. You know, I did a lot of writing and copywriting and advertising in New York City. And I've always been a researcher and writer. So mm. it came always very easily. So um, it was the right right move to do that. And did you feel, um, I want to ask you about Leo AR in
0: a minute, but did you feel in terms of your um, your working style and just the way that you think, that it was better served in kind of an entrepreneurial setting. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that versus kind of, um, what's expected of you intellectually in a corporate setting.
1: Yeah. Um, I think I'm a very hardworking person. Like I remember and just in general, my whole life has been like so disciplined, right? Like I did volleyball since I was four years old. I did piano since I was seven. I took it all the way through volleyball, obviously through college Um, and piano, I ended up stopping at 18 years old, but I did like crazy tests in piano, like auditory tests, performance tests, um, sight reading tests. Like I was like considered a master in piano in a way. So, um, my whole life has just been very hardworking. Like my parents didn't believe in just like, Oh, you can just chill out and play video (laughs) games. (laughs) So I felt like in the corporate world, I felt like I wasn't learning enough. You know, I didn't feel like I was learning new things. So I remember at, like, lunchtime, I would go to the library every day. And then I would come back, like, two hours later, and they'd be like, where where were you? And I was like, I was at the library. Like, I just felt like I was, like, not learning enough, actually. So when I got into tech, I was so excited because it's, like, never the same. You know, like, every day there's new technology. Things change all the time. So I was, like, so excited to find a job that, like constantly kept me thinking and on my toes because that's exactly kind of how I was like my entire life and I I really love it and so so walk
0: us through your decision and at what point you decided you were going to start your own company
1: um well obviously working for um, a new a new startup was difficult uh, requires a lot of hours and time and like in tech, everything is kind of 24 seven, especially mm-hmm. when you're young and you're trying to move up. So like, I felt like weekends I was working and, you know, late at night I was sending response emails because in PR you have to kind of, we had a rule like within three seconds, you had to respond to your client Wow. <laughs> because the client's, you know, paying fifteen twenty thousand $20,000 a month to get this kind of service. It was, it was a very high tiered PR company. Mm-hmm. So, um, I just felt like I worked so hard for this other woman, um, which is great. Like she's done super well, but I was like, now I really want to do this for myself. And kind of, I, I moved it in my head to pursue, like try my own startup at that time when I was really, I was really burnt out to be honest, after the first year of helping someone build their company. Right. Right. It's exhausting. Yeah. It's just, it's just as hard as building a company as being someone's first hire or second hire.
0: Right. And sometimes harder because you're not calling the shots. Right. So, and so what was the
1: first, what was your first venture? So, the first one was called Art Debutante. Um, it was building an online curated marketplace to purchase art uh, that may not be, you know, it's not like a Van Gogh, but it's an up and coming artist. So, you kind of become a, it was like before a Patreon, but a Patreon type of model, you become a patron to that artist and allow them to continue painting.
0: And hopefully oh.
1: it increases in value um, for the artwork that you purchase.
0: Oh, and is it still in existence?
1: No, no. We had co-founder issues. <laughs> so it fell apart <laughs> eight months in. Um, I think it's a pretty common problem, but it was pretty devastating because I do like the idea. And it's obviously a very popular model with like Masterworks and 8Paddle. There was a whole bunch that kind of came out like a few years later. Yes. Um, so it was a very good idea, but the our, we didn't work as co-founders. So if you don't mind,
0: you don't have to divulge anything personally about your situation, but let's pause here for a second and give some advice to entrepreneurs out there who are looking for a co-founder. Do you have any suggestions about what to do and what not to do?
1: Yeah, I do, actually. I think um, obviously finding a co-founder is a lot easier than doing any kind of company on your own, especially if you're a first-time founder. So I do think if you're a founder who doesn't have a lot of experience to not partner with someone else who doesn't have a lot of experience, because mm-hmm. I think that like it's smarter to find someone who has experience that you can learn from. And then maybe in your second company, you can go and partner with, once you have all the learnings, you can go and partner with anyone you want, whether they have experience or not. But I think what, what broke us apart is that both of us were scrambling to kind of figure it out on our own. Um, cause it was both our first companies. Right. So, my advice would be to kind of find a person, if you're not experienced, more experienced. And also, like, I think work ethic is really important. And I think that, like, ultimately, I felt like I was doing way a bit more work than she was and more mm-hmm. serious about the project. And for her, it was kind of, it felt like a hobby. Mm-hmm. And so, I think it's like working with someone for a good two to three months before you, like, divvy out the shares and you get really serious about how you're going to pay each other. Like you really got to know this person well and, and work with them a bit to feel them out as far as like, how are they going to work as a co-founder before you really sign up to do it together? Yeah, a hundred percent.
0: And I also wanted to add that it's also helpful if you think you're more an operator that you get someone else who's really more kind of big picture oriented and vice versa, someone so that you have um, different skill sets as well. Um True. I think that's True. really helpful. Um all right, so let's talk about Leo AR and how that all came about cuz that's a very high tech venture.
1: It's very high tech. Yeah, and it doesn't have a like a normal path either of like I didn't go out saying I'm going to build the number one consumer AR app. Mm-hmm. It was really um as usual as kind of an extension of where I'd started. So the idea that we started with Leo is so that we wanted to build a 2D sticker marketplace for artists to get global distribution of their stickers across chat apps, you know, Slack and all the other platforms for communication. And we started this in 2016 and it's called Moji Lala. And uh, we wanted to build a competitor to LINE. LINE was building a huge platform for artists and selling 300 million dollars worth of stickers every year and no one had really built this in the United States. Mm -hmm. And, um, obviously visual communication continues to be a big way that people communicate. And so we set out to find the artists and build the marketplace. And we did it relatively shortly. We had in six months of launch in 2017, we had over 2000 artists and 40,000 stickers. Um, and everything was doing really well. (laughs) Like we were really excited. It was like, it was exciting, fun. It's a fun startup to be working on. But we started to see the behavior of the user moving really from chat to camera. And then we mm-hmm. were like, hmm, chat kind of was like the last 10 years and the future's in camera. Um, and people were dragging and dropping the stickers into photo and video. And so we were like, the next phase of augmentation and communication is not only going to be text, which it is today in, with stickers and gifts, It's going to be augmenting using animated, what we thought would be 2D animated stickers into the camera. So if you had your camera open and you were in the forest, you would have um, a monkey swinging on the branch.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we thought it would be that. So we would like smartly suggest which animated sticker to apply to your video. And then you can augment your video. Um, and so we started to move in this direction and we're building out um, a way to scan the objects in the camera and then AR kit hit. And then we were like, oh, my God, this isn't 2D. It's going to be 3D realistic objects, which is way cooler um, and just way better visual for communication, right? Because now in the video, you can't really tell what's real and fake when you have the shadows and the 3D dimensions. Mm. So we were really excited. like Our vision completely aligned with where the technology was going. And so we quickly launched Leo AR um, as fast as we could in like 2018. Wow. Yeah. So it had a weird kind of start, but it's definitely, you know, we try to augment text through helping artists and building an artist marketplace. And then Leo AR, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to create an artist marketplace for AR 3D object designers to submit their objects and sell directly to consumers. So it's actually the same playbook as the 2D stickers, but now the 3D world is just a way, it's a way bigger market. So for for listeners that
0: might not know a lot about AR, could you give some examples, like if they were one of your customers, how they would use Leo AR and, and, and any future thought about how your product might be developed in the future and how they might use it and apply it in their everyday life?
1: Yeah, so today, Leo is one of the easiest places to create an AR video. You basically open the app and it instantly opens a category and the camera and you tap an object and you instantly see the object in front of you. You can add as many objects as you want. You can have a thousand, you can add a hundred or just keep one. Um, and you can do a whole scene. You can like, you know, move around the room and have a tree in one place, a flamingo in the other and a a lion in, in the other corner. So you can quickly record it and share it cross platform. So it's, it's literally one of the easiest ways to create an AR video that even a three year old can create a scene. Um, and the way that i picture this going which obviously today it's it's very simple way because ar is so new for people right like a lot of mm-hmm. people try our app and they're like oh my god i didn't know my phone can can <laughs> can have a 3d object you know and they get they get really excited both the parents and the kids it's a very like family oriented app so i get to really hear people's first impressions of you know when they first see 3d objects and it's it's pretty magical for everyone Um, And then where I see this is going is interesting. Obviously, it's going to move from mobile and iPad into glass. Um, I think, Mm. you know, Google and Apple are working on their glasses because to be hands free and kind of immersed in this digital layer on the existing world is kind of uh, the epitome of where we're going with AR Mm -hmm. Um, Because right now it feels very much like a window and a portal and you know, I think we've become quickly adjusted to this because of COVID and the screens and zoom and Skype how we're all used to communicating through a box, which has been pretty interesting but um, the future will be hands free in a glass and I imagine kind of the mainstream user I think Leo AR is something that's going to move into like the Amazon of AR so I, I picture you kind of walk into your office and you go to Leo and you pick a design that you want in your office to work in. Mm. So you'll have your glass on, you'll walk into your office and you're like, I want to have this scene of the beach in front of me behind my desk. Ah. And so then you like instantly buy it through Leo and you have this automatic environment surrounding you. Or you're going into like your bedroom and you want to have yoga. You'll have this like scene of the mountains and, candles that change colors every five seconds it's kind of like that zoom virtual background come to life
0: right (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) just in like 3d version and in in your actual environment because i think like you really believe what you see like the sight is a strong sense um, right five senses so um you know maybe there will be sounds and stuff i don't know how that will work because i do think eventually there'll be sounds and smells somehow Mm -hmm. to make it realistic right Um, that comes along with more science and did you
0: um so i I founded a tech company several years ago, and I didn't personally have a tech background. and for myself i I found it um. Challenging when it came to product management and and overseeing teams that were actually you know building the product because I was not a software engineer per se and I'm just curious I know you had mentioned to me uh, when we first met that you also didn't have a tech background did you find that there were any
1: hardships involved with that in launching your business or not so um, because it's my second company um, I obviously find it less difficult to do it Mm -hmm. because I already had kind of an existing team that I've been working with for a long time. And kind of my head of engineering is obviously doing all the management for the engineers. Mm -hmm. And I do most of the high level stuff, including like pitching and BD and vision and also product. But um, he does all the management. Like I, I don't know how to build a company without either a CTO or a head of engineering, because Mm. that's, Like you said, it's so difficult to manage the product and I, and I did everything. Like I've tried working with third party outsourcing companies that help you to kind of manage the engineers and that never worked out. So, um, I think the key is really finding your CTO or head of engineering. Yeah. Amen to
0: that. So if you're out there and you want to build a tech company, make sure one of your co-founders is a hardcore tech person. Yeah. That'll be (laughs) a lot easier. So let's talk about some of your hacks, because I I thought that um, some of the some of the things that you had shared with me were so interesting. So tell us what would be some of the top three hacks you would recommend to founders who are starting out and, and maybe like you are in San Francisco are in need of extra runway. I mean, what would you what would you suggest?
1: Yeah, so um one of the things I think is really important to teach aspiring entrepreneurs is, is to start early and start early means reach out to investors as soon as you can. Um, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs that are trying to make it, they, especially for women, they always kind of, they're so realistic that they're like, okay, when I launch my product, then I'll go out and fundraise. Or when I build this, I'll go out and fundraise and when I find my designer, or find my co-founder, I'll go out and do it. But really, uh, I say as early as possible, go out and talk to people. You really need to build the network and the community even during COVID times. Um, and don't rely on like, I have to have a live product or whatever, like always go out with a, a DAG. It could be five pages, 10 pages on keynote with even some like sketches or designs of what you're planning to build because the first check you bring in is always because of you as a founder. It's not because of your product. So, right. I always say as early on as possible go out talk to people get mentors get advisors find your team but also meet with investors because those investors you meet will start to see your progress and usually the the first check you get in is because of the progress you've made Mm. and so Mm -hmm. if they saw you and you were like laughable you only had a deck you didn't even have a product you have no co-founder but at least they'll remember you when you come back six months later and you have a co-founder and you're building an advisory board You know, they'll remember like, oh, she's done a lot in six months. She has a team. She's raised a little money. Like, I think that's like one big hack is is start as early as possible. Yeah, and I
0: wanted to just add to that uh, for for listeners that you can think about it almost um, as informational interviews when, on the corporate side, where oftentimes you're looking to get a job, but maybe you're not ready to switch and start looking, but you want to educate yourself about a particular company or a particular field, and you ask people to set you up with interviews, and you're not in the room literally asking for a job, you're asking questions, and I do agree with you that I think the you start to socialize the idea of your product your company and you with the community the better it's just if you actually go out and do a hardcore pitch and you don't have the metrics you have to make sure that you know who you're pitching to and whether or not it's a proper fit at that stage yeah so so now take us on that journey so you um so did you find that it was really a, a, a big step forward for you to start early and start making these connections early on before you were even building your product?
1: Yeah, I mean, I literally, I like I mentioned, I had no background in entrepreneurship as far as like I hadn't done any accelerators. And my whole life I'd been trained to be very humble. So like I never told people I went to Yale. I never told people I was like, junior Olympic volleyball athlete. And then I did like crazy master piano (laughs) lessons like nothing. I never my dad was always so humble, too. So like we were all trained, like not to talk about it and just kind of work as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And so I think that really was tough for me when I first started. I had to learn how to pitch myself. I literally took probably an entire 30 days to learn how to pitch myself without turning red, without getting super (laughs) uncomfortable. Like it was like very hard (laughs) stuff to make. Wow. Um so I really had to like practice. I just took a ton of videos in my iPhone of myself pitching myself, pitching the product and not relying on like a physical real app or a website to kind of help me draw like you know build the picture around what I wanted to build. So um yeah, I took a lot of practice and obviously I I'm not from Silicon Valley and I didn't have a Stanford network. So obviously I had to build it from scratch and I did a lot. What you just said, like I reached out on LinkedIn and asked for coffee dates. Like I'm like to try to get uh, information from people like you're an amazing entrepreneur. How did you get started? And you meet other entrepreneurs are willing to open up their connections. And so it's a mix. It's not just going after VCs. It's meeting other entrepreneurs who are willing to help you in the space. Yeah, that's,
0: that's a really great piece of advice. We are, unfortunately, almost out of time. I'm wondering, is there one last little jewel you want to throw out there?
1: No, I have two. Uh, two more really okay. quickly. I okay, always, go. Um, if there's any women that, you know, get pregnant and stuff in the process, I always say it's it's a pretty safe bet to, like, enter an, um, an accelerator. I think so accelerators beyond, even if you're a first-time founder, I always suggest joining an accelerator just to kind of get above the riffraff and Get the little filter that you need. Um, it's a great place when you're pregnant to kind of have the support and community for your co-founder while you're going through this process of delivering a baby. So that's my <laughs> second hack. And then my third hack is uh, hiring remote teams. Oh. I think it's it's when you're bootstrapped, it's a really great way to extend the lifeline of your business.
0: And and that's what you've done with your tech team, I'm presuming? Yes. I've been working remote since 2012. And do you want to say what country you like to work with,
1: or does it not matter? Um, Well, my co-founder was from Turkey, Istanbul, um, Mm. and I had done everything from hiring third parties to trying to recruit kids from Stanford and working on the campus. I mean, I I did everything, and hiring remotely, you feel like the engineers are really excited to work with a Silicon Valley-based company, and they're super appreciative, and they're also a little bit more mature Mm. as far as, you know, you can get someone that's four or five years out. Um, from college with experience in other countries Um, and I don't know it's just it's just a different vibe but it's 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 a bit more positive and they're cheaper and they're just they're just as talented you don't necessarily need to go to like a four-year base school to be an engineer these days
0: yeah absolutely
1: all right so Dana
0: please share with us uh, information about Leo AR before we sign off so if people want to download your app
1: where would they go Sure, you can go to leoapp.com. We're also in the Apple App Store and Google Play Store under Leo AR.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you again.
1: These, this was great. I love your
0: suggestions, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. So thank you again, and tune in next week for more Startup Hacks. We've got another great show that you won't want to miss on the secret female founder strategies that will save you time and money when building your business. This podcast is brought to you by we Global Studios, the first startup innovation studio and digital do-it-yourself startup platform for women entrepreneurs around the world. For more information on our guests, this podcast, and many other female founder programs, please visit WeGlobalStudios.com. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and we will see you next week.